it, it's been good, man. We're, we're staying at a nice hotel and uh, amidst the mountains and, you know, there's fresh powder on the mountains today and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to get out there and, and get some skiing. And it's been, it's been a long time. Um, so I expect a lot of tumbles and, and uh, maybe some bruises, but it'll be fun. And uh, so I'm in Boston, uh, you know, having to do some some dirty work. It was zero degrees when I was supposed to be flying in, but somehow we got it up into the 50s. And I'm so thankful because uh, as a Texan, I don't I don't have a good jacket. <laughs> I, I don't think I actually own a jacket now that I think about it. Are you are you native to the Bay Area? Yeah, I, I grew up down in San Jose. Um, I, I went and did a startup in Idaho. Don't ask me why. I was young and stupid. Um, and then I've been back here ever since. That's awesome. Well, uh, since we're talking to you, let's get this thing going. Brent, are you ready? I'm ready to do it, man. Okay, let's do this thing. So it's uh, welcome to the hot aisle. This is episode 30. And uh, with me today, I, you know, I've been talking to you already. How are we doing today? Who is this? I'm, this is Brent Piotti, man. As always, I'm happy to be here. And I'm Brian Carpenter, and I'm also very excited to be here. It's a beautiful Friday, um, and we have a fantastic guest. Let's just get into this, right? Um, the goal of the show this week is to educate you on Mesosphere, uh, what it is, how it works, and what the impact is of providing efficient resource isolation and sharing across distributed applications or frameworks. I have no idea what I just said. I took it off of a wiki page, uh, but thankfully we have someone here with us to explain it. Uh, so Thomas Rampelberg is with us here. Thank you for joining us, Thomas. Oh, you bet. I'm looking forward to it. How was my German? Did I crush it? Uh, it was good enough for me. Okay. So uh, I maybe a little bit Oktoberfest, some beer, I'd be a little bit better off. So uh, Thomas, Tell us what you're doing right now. Uh, you know, let's let's get to hear about this thing that you're doing here at Mesosphere. What's uh, what's your job there, and what are you focused on? Uh, so I'm one of the product managers here, and um, we've really just been working on on building out this uh, data center operating system and making it a, a real thing. Uh, we we started out. Oh, geez. Um, so I, I started maybe a couple years ago here at Mesosphere, and. Um, we were always would always put quotes around data center operating system and say, "Oh, don't worry about that. That's just marketing saying that it's going to be an operating system someday." Um, and about a year ago, uh, we decided, "Let's stop putting quotes around it and let's make a real operating system." And so I've gotten the pleasure of uh, being able to say, "What is an operating system for a data center? What does it mean? How can we make it a real thing?" And it's been super, super exciting. That's great. Yeah, so you know, definitely want to dig into the product, but I think it's important to point out, Thomas, that you're not just uh, uh, you're not just a product manager, right? You, you've, you're a software engineer. You've come from other startups. You, you've worked for Cisco and BitTorrent and some of these other companies, right? So, at your core, you are a developer. So, talk to us a little bit about that. How did you get into it? Kind of what's your what's your kind of favorite language and all these kind of things to help us kind of really understand, you know, what makes you tick. Oh man, this is great. Um, so uh, I, I definitely have been doing engineering pretty much my whole life. Um, I've done all of it. Um, like I, I kind of said uh, a little bit earlier, um, I spent some time in Idaho doing a startup. Uh, I've been doing startups my whole life. Um, did Ironport, got bought by Cisco, BitTorrent, pretty much everywhere I've worked has been you know smaller companies. And so I've always spent a lot of time wearing a lot of hats. Um, I, I actually got hired here at Mesosphere as a front-end developer doing the UIs for Mesos and Marathon and that kind of thing. Um, but when it gets down to it, uh, the problems that I solve really come down to things that I want to solve the user's pain more than anything else. And so I got uh, talked into the dark side, a.k.a. product management, <laughs> about a year ago now because um, I had a little bit more leverage around making sure that that you know pain gets solved on the customer side. So is it true um, that is it is it true that those that can't anymore product manage or is that like not really true at all? I, I uh, there was a little bit of we'll call it uh, roughness around um, our product kind of early on, like you always have with new code. And so I kind of dove in and, and fixed some of it and helped customers out. 
And some of the engineers here looked at my code and said, Thomas, we're never merging that code back in again. Just accept it. <laughs> so I, I think uh, I, I think at some point I stopped being able to, and I'm now managing. <laughs> awesome. Well, I didn't mean to distract you if you had some more thoughts on uh, where, where things are going as you're project managing or product managing and stuff like that. So by all means, keep letting us know. Oh, no, you bet. No, it's been, uh, it's been a really good experience to be able to kind of focus on a really technical product. In fact, it's one of the coolest things I've done. It's really easy to go and do something that's B2C like um, BitTorrent because, you know, everybody sees it. But it's kind of a bummer because you don't get to go and build it for people like you. And so the thing that I really, really love about Mesosphere is because we're kind of attacking a big swath of the stack, I get to go build products for operators like I was in previous startups. I get to go build products for developers like I have been in previous startups. And it's really fun to go and, and you know look at the pain I have had in the past in my life and be able to go build products that, that fixes that specifically. So I'm, I'm curious, you've said, you've talked, we've talked about this startup in Iowa or Idaho. Um, was it like a, a potato brokerage or like, <laughs> what is this? I didn't even know they had startups in Idaho. So I think that's cool. Where, what, tell us about that. Uh, so we did, uh, a buddy, buddy and I, uh, once we graduated college, looked at each other and said, you know, we should do a startup. What should we do? And um, he suggested uh, that we do anti-spam and antivirus as a service, kind of like Postini and Mail Lab, uh, Message Labs. This was 2003, so you know it was kind of a novel thing back then. And, and because he had grown up in Idaho, in Boise, um, and said, you know, hey, I can crash with my parents and rent's cheap. Why don't we do it there? It's a, it's a global economy. Investors will invest anywhere, right? So uh, we went up there and did uh, anti-spam, antivirus as a service. It was a very interesting learning experience, let's say. Okay, very good. So, um, so speaking of, you've worked for a bunch of companies that uh, that have been purchased, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I saw that uh, Mesosphere was was looking to get acquired by Microsoft in the past. Uh, you guys turned that down, but uh, I wanted to use that quickly as a segue into a segment that we do every week called "This Week in Tech History." So, this week in tech history on 15 February 2005, just a cool 11 years ago. YouTube is launched. Um, so I think everyone knows what YouTube is, but some fun facts about it. Two years after its launch, Google purchased it for $1.65 billion. They have over 1 billion users, and almost a third of, that's almost a third of the people on the Internet. 100 hours of video are, are uploaded every minute. And this I actually found interesting. Over 80% of YouTube's views are from outside of the U.S., so, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't anticipate that. I figured we're like probably, apart from China, like the most connected place in the, on the globe. But uh, yeah, we're a small uh, fraction of uh, YouTube traffic. So let me, let me add, add something in there because those numbers are like stunning. But I, I think it misses the cultural significance that YouTube has had. Um, I, I've got uh, my, my partner has some nephews that are teenagers now that I go and use for, we'll call it cultural research. And um, I spent some time with them and, and asked them how they actually go about, you know, learning new subjects. And they go to YouTube for it. In fact, you go to YouTube and there's these videos upon videos upon videos of not just like how to build things in Minecraft or how to play video games, but like I, I found videos on how to change the oil in your car and how to do the spark plugs. And, and it's like, it's become this thing that, that like it's blown me away because we've moved from books and Wikipedia pages like the old guy that I like to use <laughs> yeah. and over to this video thing. It's just amazing how much has changed. And to your point, 11 years ago, how crazy is that? Yeah. You know, I, to your point, I go to YouTube first to find out an answer to something. I'm a visual learner. I'm more of a kind of – that's not really hands-on. But when you can see the pieces and parts and someone actually doing something – it's more impactful. The next step is usually Wikipedia, and then the, the next is you know maybe like the product page or, or whatever it may be. But I almost predominantly go to YouTube first. If there's a video, I want to watch it. And, and a product that was created to share videos of your children, 
now does that. It just blows me away. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, my kids, uh, rather than, I mean, I think the number one thing watched in our house is probably something, I think he's called like Stampy Longnose or something like that. It's a Minecraft <laughs> streamer. Uh, and the guy is annoying to adults, but I think kids love his crazy voices. My kids watch him nonstop. So they sit like at the table and just watch his playlists of YouTube playthroughs of Minecraft over and over and over again. So uh, it's uh, the uses are, are broad. I, I have a friend who doesn't even have like TV. He only has over the air, watches tons of YouTube. I think he sends me links like, you know, five times a day. So, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of culture where the content isn't as heavy here, right? We have, we don't have a, a direct TV in, in time Warner shoving, uh, you know, desperate housewives and uh, real housewives of orange County or whatever in our face. So they probably tend to go somewhere where they can get content from anywhere. And that probably is YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. So cool stuff. So speaking of content from anywhere, go ahead. Brent, you have another follow? Well, you know, you just, you just, there's one last fun fact. You said it like like Time Warner and all these different, like the three major U.S. networks. I don't know what the heck they are. What are, does anyone know? Like who cares? CBS, NBC, whatever. More content is uploaded in 60 days on YouTube than all three of the major US networks have generated in the last 60 years. Oh man, that's really cool stuff. So, <laughs> so speaking of content, one of the other things that you were doing in the past, I'm really curious about this. So a BitTorrent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what the average person knows a torrent to be, um, maybe doesn't necessarily align with what BitTorrent's actual goal is or what their business uh, goals were. So as a developer, um, was it was it odd or did it ever feel weird to be creating a piece of software that can be used for both good and, I guess, quote-unquote evil uh, at the exact same time? Were there, did you ever have any struggles with that? Or, you know, what did, what did you, what was your personal stance on that? Uh, I will admit that I'm a bit of a libertarian. Um, and so uh, that, you know, we'll, we'll take all of this with a grain of salt in that um, I the thing for me was really going and empowering people to go and create a new world that we hadn't seen before. Um, a lot of the stuff that BitTorrent has done recently, I think, is a great example around um, the promotions and that kind of thing. You, you've seen um, Madonna go and release um, albums for free on top of BitTorrent. And I, I think that the BitTorrent's really been an accelerator into this new world that we've seen um, really, you know, YouTube take over and Netflix take over and Amazon and, you know, all of the streaming, it's really become a, a lot more um, uh, commoditized and, you know, taken to the people instead of being controlled by the publishers and the big companies. Um, and that's really kind of what I was always in it for is that, you know, the ability to go and get that data out however you needed to. Um, Everyone laughed at the canonical um, example of downloading Linux distributions over BitTorrent, but you started to see really fantastic use cases like um, Facebook uh, has a two gigabyte binary that is Facebook that they need to distribute to tens of thousands of servers every time they do a deploy. And come to find out if you download that from one server, you never get done with the deploy. And so they went and, you know, built out BitTorrent inside their data centers to go and distribute those binaries in a, you know, fast, reliable fashion. And that that idea of taking peer-to-peer and then putting things on top of it is really, really exciting. That, that's really interesting. I didn't even know that about Facebook. So uh, thanks for that. So... Are you guys? I mean, let's get into this. Let's get into this Mesosphere thing. I assume that uh, there's no there's no torrent stuff in Mesosphere, right? Not yet. No DC, no torrent in DCOS. I, I keep on pushing for it, and I keep on getting shot down. Um, just like uh, Facebook has a binary distribution problem, um, Docker has a binary distribution problem. Your average Docker container size is a gigabyte right now, for better or worse. And so, um, I, I've seen uh, I've seen some folks go and have to upgrade to 40 gig networks just to be able to get their tests done on time because they're distributing these, you know, gigabyte binaries. And so eventually I'm going to get it in there, I swear, but it's not there yet. That's, that's actually, that's awesome. And that's, uh, again, the, uh, the foundation of new, new problems being found needing to be solved in new ways. You know, it's the, 
the uniqueness of the the change of, of, of kind of the application platforms and the, the change in the development styles and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, those are the problems you guys are solving. So let's get into, let's start with, with Mesos, right? So um, I, I'm sure you're probably extremely well-versed in Mesos. So do you want to explain to everybody uh, kind of where it started uh, and, and what it was all about when it first came out? Yeah, you bet. Um, this lets me tell history, and I love telling history, because it brings us back to the beginning of the days. Um, so uh, back in the day, oh, oh, many years ago, um, there was really only one company that was kind of running at scale, and that was Google. And inside of Google, they had Borg, um, and Borg was the container scheduler that Google put together, because as soon as you start to go from running one server or 10 servers to tens of thousands of servers, you need to really rethink how you go about running applications. And so they had gone and built this scheduler that let them run at that scale. Um, And Ben Hyman, um, one of the co-creators of uh, Mesos, had spent some time at Google and seen how awesome Borg is and wanted to take that and kind of build a platform for the next um, generation of distributed applications. So instead of this being, you know, Google only, let's actually start talking about building distributed applications at scale. Um, and I think the I think the thing we really need to focus on is what's happened at the world that during that time. Um, this was, you know, we'll call it 2008, and uh, marketing term here. I apologize. Uh, the mobile cloud was going on, and and after I got bored of mobile cloud and couldn't figure out what it really meant, uh, we all have cell phones. And all of our cell phones have, I, I think the statistic I last heard was 40 apps installed on it. And those 40 apps are connected to servers 100% of the time. And so, you know, sometime around 2005 to 2010, we went from people going and viewing web pages when they were at home every once in a while to something being in their pocket, pulling down stuff all the time and so you went from being able to get get away with one server or 10 servers to you know someone like Twitter having tens of thousands of servers Facebook tens of thousands it wasn't just Google anymore because these services are connected people are always on you're always pushing data and you're always doing things um, and I think that that's really kind of the the crucible we'll call it that that Mesos came out of was this we need to be able to run at this massive scale and we need to be able to have a brand new abstraction layer to manage it because the traditional um, one ops guy to 100 servers just isn't going to scale. There's not enough ops guys in the world to be able to take care of tens of thousands of thousands of millions of PCs. That's that's awesome. So are there, like, do you have some, I mean, the early wins for Mesos, um, aside from, you know, being founded where it was, uh, you have stories about kind of the early people using it. I mean, I know we had a guest on before who uh, said they were using it at um, at Apple, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with other people who were, you know, kind of adopted it and said, man, this is a thing, and, and what power did it bring to them? Um, I, I think that the, the biggest, best example is Twitter, where we remember the fail whale. Fail whale happened again and again and again, and um, they started to slowly replatform to the point now where, I believe almost all of their infrastructure is running on um, on top of Mesos, and you'll notice that um, there's no fail whale anymore. We had the Super Bowl. I don't think anybody heard about a fail whale. We had uh, the World Cup. I don't think anybody even noticed that there was load, which is like the best thing ever. Because if you think the Super Bowl was this massive spike in traffic for them. And, you know, traditional means just wouldn't have cut it. They would have had issues. So we hear about the Twitters, the Apples, kind of the progressive, you know, born in the cloud, um, certainly less uh, less monolithic enterprise-type application. Um, I mean, are, are other co- types of companies looking at this stuff? Like who who kind of outside of who you would, would immediately think of? Is, is looking at Mesos and uh, ultimately Mesosphere uh, to, to help them? Uh, I think that that's the, a great one. Um, so far, we've gone through 
what, what I'd call the web scale early adopters who needed the tool to be able to get their job done. And now we're starting to move into um, a slightly different crowd where they, they need it and they've realized they need it, but they're not necessarily um, so early adopters that they'll take on something that you know a bunch of college students put together in a basement over the course of a year. <laughs> um, and so you know one of the one of the best customers that we have here at Mesosphere is um, Verizon, um, Telco, right? You'd think that they move slow, but in fact um, they spent some time trying to research what they could do to build a application cloud internally and no other solution scaled to the, the level that they needed and nothing was as performant. So I think that you, you kind of nailed it on the head, right? Which uh, is, I, I don't want to take this thing out of a, you know, a college basement. So Ben, it sounds like recognized that, that, that gap and is like, Hey, let's make, Mesosphere and make an enterprise class product. So, so talk to me a bit about that evolution from, you know, uh, development of Mesos as an Apache pros, uh, a project into Mesosphere and kind of enterprise class um, software stack. Oh, there's so much. There's so many fun uh, Mesosphere stories I can really tell here. Um, we really started out kind of as the the Mesos company, obviously. And um, Mesos is really interesting in the orchestration world because it's a two-level scheduler. Um, and I'm going to try and, and distill that down. So please ask questions if, if you don't quite understand. Oh, we will. Um, I'll just go to YouTube and search it if I don't, if I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Um, so a two-level scheduler really breaks out the, the difference between resource offers from actually placing of tasks. And so Mesos itself goes and says, hey, I... I noticed that there are some resources sitting around in the cluster and offers them up to the second level scheduler that goes and decides, yep, sure, I definitely want to use them, or no, I don't. Um, the, the, this this two-level scheduler is really kind of the power behind Mesos. Um, a fun story before I jump into the, the Mesosphere side of things. Um, one of the first demo applications for Mesos was actually Spark, and it was uh, built in uh, ski house of Ben's over the course of a weekend as a demo application for Mesos. And now it's become, you know, a, an amazing um, big data platform that's really kind of the next generation. Um, so fun little story there. But but now let me get kind of into to more of where I'm going with this is um, we started out as the, the Mesos company and looked at it and said, oh, crap, you need more than Mesos. What do you actually need? And so we went and built um, Marathon. So Marathon is a second-level scheduler that runs on top of Mesos, and it works a lot like the initd that you're used to in Linux. So you go and, and make sure that you've said, here's my process, run it, no, really just keep it running, that's all I want you to do. And so Marathon really started out of that, and we went from being the Mesos company to the Mesos Marathon company, which is awesome. but. As soon as you're starting to do these um, dynamic things inside of a data center, there are a bunch of other uh, ancillary processes that you need to start to run. Um, a really good example is um, service discovery starts to be a hard problem. Um, back in the day when I did operations, service discovery was, I'm going to go run this app on this server. The server has an IP address. It's never moving. So service discovery was really easy. It was uh, basically a spreadsheet with application names and servers that were running. And I'm not joking. That's literally how I did it. So the first, the first service discovery company was Microsoft Excel. Exactly okay. right. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure that we can track everything back to Microsoft Excel just to make sure we're clear. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, as soon as you move out of that static world into this dynamic world where loads are getting scheduled anywhere based off of resources and getting moved, service discovery starts to be a really big thing. And so we went from being the Mesos Marathon company to the Mesos Marathon, and here's how you do service discovery company. So, uh, you know, as this started to become more and more, uh, you just needed more and more and more. And um, as you went out of the early adopters, people wanted to build less and less and less of it. So what we ended up with is the data center operating system, where Mesos is the kernel, and then we go and provide all of the software that you need 
to get it running, just like your laptop comes with more than just a kernel. It comes with, you know, a GUI and a CLI and all kinds of other stuff. That's, that's really where the data center operating system came from. Um, and we really put it together to go after that enterprise crowd. So Mesosphere is the company and the data center operating system or DCOS is the product? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so DCOS, is it based on a, a specific uh, strain of Linux or is there multiple variants based on uh, the people who, try to, who like to consume this stuff maybe having uh, their flavor that they like, right? There's always the guy who has like the BSD tattoo. So that's a, a great question. The, the, the answer is a little complicated in that um, we really kind of view the host operating system just like a BIOS. So uh, DCOS actually runs on top of quite a few different uh, operating uh, base OSs. So um, at the moment, we run on top of um, CentOS 7 and CoreOS. And in the very new future here, we'll be running on top of Ubuntu as well. That's, um, yeah, that's cool. I mean, so somebody can just go grab whatever. Is, uh, is there potential for, is there a way that like, you know, people who use Fedora or whatever, it's a bit of a different experience. But for those that have kind of centered on Red Hat, maybe they consider you a competitor of sorts, but is there a way that they'd be able to also do DCOS while still taking their their Red Hat Enterprise experience with them? Or is that, what does that look like? Uh, in fact, that's the, the reason we went and picked CentOS was so that we could get um, Red Hat Enterprise Linux for free, more or less. Um, so, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux is also fully supported. That's awesome. I didn't mean to cut you off. You were talking about, uh, you know, you had CentOS, you had a couple of these other things. So what people do next after they've kind of consumed this? Uh, well, so it, it's, um, I think it's less that and more. I was kind of going to go into a little bit of the architecture of DCOS where um, we're, we're building that new abstraction layer. And so the, the hosts at some point are not particularly interesting to us. Um, we, we built an early product, um, early, well before DCOS, that um, tried to go and build um, Mesos Marathon clusters in the cloud. And we just had a ton of reliability problems because we were kind of using the, the old way of doing things, using um, config management. And, you know, I would say that we, we would have clusters that would only, you know, would fail to come up maybe 10% of the time. Because especially if you were building a 100-node cluster, you know, a couple hosts would fail because the apt-get repository was down or something like that. Um, and so DCOS, we've really kind of gone back to the OS basics and looked at it and said, hey, a OS gets distributed as an ISO. Um, what, what should we do? And so DCOS is actually this one package that you install. It's not... 30 components, 35 components that you need to figure out how to get onto a box. And so because of that, we've made it reliable to the point where um, I've built multi-thousand node clusters with the push of a button and had everything come up 100% of the time. Wow, that's significant. So I, I think I think just if I could take a step back real quick. I mean, you, you've, you've explained the scheduler, uh, the, the two-level scheduler, um, the other components that go along with the DCOS. Um, but what, what problem is it trying to solve? I mean, I watched the demo of it, and it's, and it's, it's really cool. Um, and it streamlines and, and simplifies um, you know, a lot of your, you, I think you call them frameworks, which are applications. Uh, but what, what are you what are you really trying to solve? Like, what's the problem out there today that requires a DCOS? Uh, I'm, I'm really going to focus on one specific problem here because I think it's the top of everyone's minds. So don't, don't take this as this is the only problem that you can solve with DCOS because I think that the, there's actually quite a few more that we could, we could talk about. Um, but uh, about two years ago, um, Docker came on the scene and introduced the world to this idea of packaging your application up into this small thing that can run. Um, it's an amazing tool. The developer experience is great. Um, but I continue to have operators walk up to me and go, you know, my developers just went and rewrote all of our application in Docker as microservices, and now I need to figure out how to run it in production. And so 
at some point, DCOS at the moment is solving this really awesome problem of running containers in production, and not just containers, but microservices and modern applications. Okay, so so is it? Um, it's obviously geared towards you know the modern cloud native application containerization and microservices. Um, are those the only type of applications? Uh, do they have to be containerized, or can you run them independently, or have you know, kind of like monolithic stacks? Uh, th- they definitely do not need to be containerized, or containerized is a strong word because you need to actually ask the question: What do you mean by a container? Um, uh, Docker has really built an amazing file format around a container. Um, but Mesos, back when it was originally created, came with a containerizer. Um, and that containerizer was nothing more than isolation. So it used the C groups to be able to isolate a directory on the file system away from everything else, from memory to CPU to disk and all the rest of that. Um, so kind of, I, I like to joke around that the original container was a jar file. And um, there's no reason that you need to shove a jar into a container like Docker. You can just run it with um, DCOS. So it, it will it will run anything. In fact, my favorite demo is distributed sleep. Um, it's the only good use case I have. And don't I know it's not a good use case. But uh, when I go show scale, it, I'll just start up a task that runs sleep on the host. And that is my canonical kind of example of, of running the dumbest thing I can possibly think about on top of DCOS. So, so that's, that's one side of things. Um, the, the part where DCOS really gets exciting, though, is when, when you get into this category of things that, that we like to call modern applications. So if you look at Twitter, um, Twitter is not just a bunch of front ends that receive data. It's, and it's not just something that you know, goes into a database they actually have a ton of um, learning on top of it. So, you know, when you go look at your feed of tweets, they have recommended tweets. That takes machine learning. That takes, you know, Spark, Hadoop, something like that on the back end. And so, in, in our opinion, a modern application is not just built full of containers. It also is big data and analytics. And DCOS is the only platform that you can run all of those on the same cluster at once with. And so is there, you mentioned Docker, you mentioned being able to use uh, kind of your own C groups. Are you still, are you still using C groups if somebody doesn't want to consume Docker um, in DCOS? Uh, very much so. Um, in fact, I, I say that a majority of our customers are doing that. Um, the Docker daemon can crash from time to time and uh, we get rid of that issue for you pretty well by just running, you know, jars and C groups. So unless you're running a application that's really kind of complicated to install, like a Python or Ruby application, um, most people kind of jump to running a jar and just being done with it. And then um, uh, what about the other kind of container standards that might be out there, for instance, uh, Kubernetes and things like that? Are there, are there and then uh, I guess Microsoft's try or has or sort of talked about releasing their containers. What can you and can't you do in the, in the ecosystem right now? Um, so it, it depends on what level of integration you'd like to talk about. Um, at, at one side of it, you can pretty much do whatever you want with little integration. Um, so far, Docker has been integrated. Um, we have some rocket integration. Um, and then um, Kubernetes, uh, while it's not really a container format, um, you can actually run the Kubernetes scheduler on top of DCOS. Um, I, I like to joke that um, if you go and try and install Kubernetes on on prem on bare metal, um, CoreOS has written these really fantastic docu- documentation on how to do it. But it, it is basically a tome. I don't know, maybe thirty pages. I got through it, but it took me days. Um, and to get Kubernetes installed on top of DCOS, because of all of the underlying infrastructure that's been built. Um, all you need to do is type one command, DCOS package install Kubernetes, and you're up and running. Interesting. So, and, and that uh, kind of leads to the questions about the service catalog. So there is, is there a, a um, 
are you guys kind of uh, curating the service catalog or is the community um, delivering the service catalog to try to help get these integrations going? Because uh, I noticed Spark, Cassandra, uh, Kubernetes, uh, you know, basically anything that was in the smack stack was kind of, you know, there for obvious reasons, right? So mm-hmm. um, Hadoop, all those kind of things. What, is, what does that look like from a universe and then a, uh, even a multiverse experience? Where, where are those integrations coming from? Uh, so that's a that's a great question. Let me let me go back to the the operating system basics, um, which is kind of our guiding light. Um, every operating system has a packaging system. You can you know yum install, you can apt-get install, and then you know it takes care of fetching the binaries, putting them where you need it needs them, and then starting them up. So we built a very similar packaging system for um, DCOS. And one of the repositories is named the universe. Um, another one is named the multiverse. So those are the kind of the two big um, current repositories where the universe is things that we have um, curated to some degree or another and tested and for the most part guarantee work. Um, though I will admit that uh, they are early adopter status status at this point in time. Um, so, so then we get into the multiverse, um, and just like on enterprise Linux, you get a default where the packages you can kind of trust. Um, we have the multiverse, which is um, basically the same as the extra packages repository for enterprise Linux, where it's not curated and the community can put in whatever they want. Um, the, the thing that, that gets me excited, though, is that the community can go and build their own repositories as much as they'd like. Um, they really can go and put together one and go and you know have their repository that does their specific thing, really because we followed that um, operating system guiding light. So let's talk about um, some, some more integrations, I guess. Um, you know, I read an article recently, I guess it was from late last year, about container persistence. And, and I know there are, there, are, there are two camps, right, that they believe that containers should be stateless, that there should be no persistence layer. Um, first of all, I'd like to get your, your thought on that. And then second, I would like to understand um, some of the integrations with the Docker volume driver and things with EMC, uh, like Rexray to help with container persistence, specifically within uh, the DCOS? Oh, that's that's a fantastic question. Um, so uh, I, I believe that users should run what they want to run. And guess what? A lot of users need to run stateful applications. Your database is part of a normal web stack, and you need to run it. And it's ridiculous to go and, and wedge off a piece of your cluster that's still statically provisioned just to be able to run those stateful workloads. Um, and so one of the things I'm actually most excited about is Rexray um, and what we call in DCOS external volumes. So in the latest release um, that actually went out last week of DCOS, um, we have Rexray integrated in now so that um, once you've configured it, um, your Docker containers automatically get an external volume. If you're running on the cloud, that means that it's a... Uh, EBS or Azure Storage, if you are running in the data center, that means that you're going and doing something with NFS or iSCSI or that kind of thing. Um, And Rexray really makes it so that you don't need to think about volumes anymore. Your Docker container comes up, it gets the volume it's supposed to, it runs, if it dies, it goes, comes up somewhere else in your data center, it gets the volume that it's supposed to. And so it really goes and elegantly solves the um, stateful container problem in you know in concert with DCOS. Awesome, yeah, that's that's super to hear. You know, I, I know the EMC code boys will will be happy to hear uh, your level of excitement for it. But um, you know, I think it's great for the community as a whole, and I think we're seeing uh, the you know the, the the divided camps are becoming a bit more integrated. Right to your point, you should be able to run whatever you want and how you mm-hmm. want, and uh, if 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 DCOS or whatever can enable it, then then great. The the number uh, the number of shootouts that I've seen for all of the container orchestrators, um, honestly ourselves included, until recently, aka last week, um, the number one complaint that users have is I don't know how to run my stateful workloads. 
I have to run stateful workloads. What am I supposed to do with my database? Yep, exactly. So last question um, regarding kind of integrations. You know, I don't think we've covered the the true kind of data center experience and, and the integrations, right? I think we, we've talked a lot about just data center in general and in cloud, but what does that mean and what are you integrated with? Obviously, you can work no problem uh, in an existing private uh, cloud, private data center. What about things like AWS, Google Cloud, um, Azure, et cetera? Uh, so the, the, my dream is um, right once run anywhere. And the, the reason behind that is kind of interesting once you start talking about clouds and on-prem because the cloud really was kind of built that way. Um, OpenStack was kind of built to solve that problem. But you end up having these, these different APIs. Um, a great example is um, AWS has cloud formation templates to go and describe how to build your um, environment out. And Azure has um, resource manager templates. Um, they're both great solutions to the problem, but you need to go and write two totally different templates to be able to integrate. Um, and so kind of the, the vision behind DCOS is um, just like uh, Windows running on anybody's hardware, you should be able to have a DCOS run on top of anybody's cloud or on-prem and have the same experience. And so one of the really big parts for us is not just being able to run on those clouds, but actually be integrated and um, run seamlessly. So the, the first example of DCOS that we released was actually a cloud formation template for AWS. Um, you can go to our website today, and within 10 minutes, you have a fully operating DCOS cluster that you can go do pretty much whatever you want with. Um, We've done the same thing with Azure, and um, we're working with Google to do the same thing on GCE. But because um, we work on-prem, it really works anywhere. All you need to do is give us some hosts with a base Linux on it, and we'll give you that abstraction layer that you need to be able to run right once, run anywhere. Okay, very cool. So I guess that that, that leads to another question, um, which uh, thanks for teeing this up. But um, Things like a platform or a platform as a service like Cloud Foundry, for instance, right? I mean, that's the the right once deploy anywhere is, is very much the goal of that. Um, but within that platform, obviously, there are um, the, the, the concept, well, can it run Docker containers? Absolutely. But it already has like kind of a built-in containerization system. Um, talk to me about your integrations with, let's say, Cloud Foundry just in, in general. Um, so there's actually a Cloud Foundry framework that runs on top of DCOS. And so uh, Cloud Foundry has a, a little dirty secret, in my opinion, that it's actually really difficult to get um, installed on-prem. They have so many components. It, in, unless you're doing something inside of a Vagrant, it's actually really difficult to get up and running. Um, and because of DCOS being that, that abstraction layer, um, if you want Cloud Foundry, great. Package install it. Um, it's the same thing as Kubernetes. It's the same thing as Swarm. You know, we really want to, to make it easy for people to run software. And, and I think that it really falls into a, a big focus that, that we have as Mesosphere, which is um, we really care about the operator. Um, a lot of the tools today are focused on improving the developer's experience. I think Cloud Foundry is a really great example of that. The developer experience is fantastic. Uh, you know, that, that Heroku-like paths is such a great developer experience. But then you start to look at the operators, and the operators are living in this, you know, stone age of VMs and config management and trying to figure out how to get this all hooked together. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I'm really proud of is that we're focused on that operator and making their lives as good as we possibly can. That's great. So, all right, we keep getting these integration, but I think it's important, right? Uh, you know, we know that the world today is, let's call it, a, predominantly a VMware shop or a virtualized uh, shop today. So, um, I, I've seen articles about uh, Mesosphere and, and, and VMware um, integrations, but talk to us about those and, and how a, you know, I, I hate the word necessarily, but a traditional, you know, VMware shop today 
would leverage uh, Mesosphere DCOS? Yeah, um, we actually have um, some customers that are VMware shops that are, are leveraging DCOS, and um, it's really an easy way to get your, your feet wet because, like I said, all we need is um, some hosts and some you know, Linux OS on top of that. Um, it's really easy to go and, you know, for better or worse, kick the tires on DCOS by going and creating a couple VMware VMs across some hosts and then putting DCOS on it and, you know, just trying out those workloads. Um, it's a really good experience that way. And so, I mean, to summarize these things, you keep saying a lot of the things that I, I just, I really like, and frankly, I hoped you would say, um, when you come to somebody's traditional architecture, uh, you, you know you have a lot of stuff that's in your environment. You want to you want to try to replatform or drive out costs. You uh, you can use Mesosphere and DCOS, but it doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bath bathwater. You can take a uh, a tr you know like a traditional architecture, um, a server you know that has persistence and is you know a storage you know basically a database maybe if it's an Oracle. And still run it inside of a Mesosphere DCOS environment. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and and while I would personally encourage people to go move to a bare metal world for performance and efficiency, there are you know realities in the world that are part of everybody's infrastructure that you just need to work with. And instead of being you know pushy and saying this is the one true way to do things. We really like to work with people to fit in with their infrastructure. Right, and as a as a business, if you've shifted, let's say, I mean, I mean, always Netflix is always the example. If you've shifted ninety nine percent of your workload into a certain type of architecture, and you still have a little bit left over that's just not quite ready yet, you don't want to have two full sets of tools and full two full sets of way to interact with your infrastructure. If you can move those old architectures in, maybe you lose some efficiencies, but you gain all the administrative efficiencies. It's kind of the whole, you know, you've shifted, but you don't have to throw everything out just yet. And then yeah. you've also said vice versa. If you're a heavy, you know, VMware architecture, and that's where all your experience is and things like that. But you, you want to, as an operations team, you want to, uh, you know, give your developers a hug and give them that, uh, you know, additional, you know, things that they need. Deploying DCOS inside of VMware is sustainable as they start to kind of try things out and sandbox it and really see what it can do for the business. Maybe as it grows, you separate the environments. Um, maybe as it grows, it becomes something that runs on top of a photon machine like we talked about last week. So it's like um, there's a lot of really interesting ways that this can be done, and there's no one way to do it, um, but which is really kind of a nice way to look at it. Exactly right. Um in fact, kind of the, the thing that, that I'm most excited about, getting back to that um, right once, run anywhere, came out of a conversation that I was having with a, a local startup here that's a SaaS business. Um, and, and they had come to us because they needed some help getting to scale and figuring out how to do things. And so they were talking about building their platform on top of DCOS. So we were kind of helping them do that. Um, and at the, the end of the conversation, I looked at them and I said, you know, because DCOS is the same everywhere, if you guys build your um, platform on top of DCOS, you realize that you can go and, and put this on-prem anywhere, right? And they, they ask, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, you can actually take your SaaS business and run it on-prem in these people that otherwise would have never been your customers. And their, their eyes lit up and, you know, they got really excited because with this kind of go and run on whatever infrastructure you need below and have this abstraction layer that's the same everywhere. Um, a lot of uh, folks who are doing SaaS businesses who've just never bothered to look at you know running anywhere and letting the user have control over that, the world is now open for them to have that choice. That's, that is, I mean, that's really cool, right? It's uh, kind of unlocking uh, those workloads and being able to move them around is very important to businesses. So it makes sense to offer that. Mm -hmm. So, wh where does where does Microsoft fit into? The, I mean, we've mentioned everybody else. Um, they deserve a hug. Uh, you know, they. I literally just saw an announcement about um, them opening up their container services to everybody on Azure. So, where does where does Microsoft fit into the story? Either from the Hyper-V world, or even um, their container services, or anything else DCOS as far as Microsoft's concerned. 
Oh, there's there's all kinds of great things we can talk about there. Um, kind of the, the first easy one to talk about is uh, yesterday's announcement around Azure Container Service um, being in public preview. And uh, one of the options for that being uh, DCOS. So you've now got a managed container service that is DCOS that you can run on Azure with, I think I built an Azure cluster in, I don't know, five minutes. It was a pretty great experience. Um, and so if you want to have that DCOS on Azure, it's an option now. Um, and so that's obviously really exciting. It's something that, that we're super um, looking forward to hitting GA and uh, getting a whole bunch of great great users on top of. Um, the, one of the other things kind of that you're alluding to that is even maybe more exciting to me is the Windows work that we've been doing around um, Mesos so that you can run Mesos and then eventually DCOS on top of Windows as well as Linux and then run and schedule whatever you want to whatever base OS you'd like. So, you know, because we're kind of treating those base OSs like BIOSes, um, now you'll be able to run your Ruby workloads on Linux and your ASP.NET workloads inside of the containers in Windows 10 on Windows natively. That's pretty cool. So is that that's already available or it's coming soon? It is something that we're working really closely with Microsoft on. Um, if you pay attention to Mesos, um, the Windows team continues to put more and more patches in to get it built out and have the container integration work perfectly. That's awesome. So, you, I mean, you talk about you, kind of the things that you're dreaming about. And as a product manager, you really own, uh, you can kind of execute on your dreams, right? So um, you have a good amount of power there. What what's you've talked about? What's kind of short term? Are you able to share with us where what's next for DCOS or Mesosphere? Or what's the major problem that you're trying to tackle next, or any of those kind of things? I think the the really big problem that we want it to hit um, is moving the discussion from containers in production to microservices in production to really those modern applications in production. And having you know the developers' experience and the operators' experience be as good as it possibly can be. So you know um, one of the one of the really great examples is um, network segmentation. Uh, in a in a really dynamic workload environment, you suddenly need to go and build a bunch of tooling around what containers run where and who can talk to what. And so, you know, some of the, the stuff that we're working on is making it so that the network is automatically segmented. So if I run a dev workload, my dev containers can only talk to dev containers and my prod containers can only talk to prod containers. Um, and, and, you know, building that kind of stuff out is really uh, killing, uh, killing the pain of... Um, operators and developers. Um, I really like to focus to to pick two different buckets of features. Some are vitamins and some are painkillers. Pain and so, so, you know, we're really going down the list of painkillers. What are things that make your life miserable running a data center? And we're in the perfect opportunity to fix it. So that, you know, that's I think that's part of your value prop. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I watched the demo, um, and I would encourage anyone out there listening, Go to uh, the Mesosphere website and watch just like the opening demo. It's like seven minutes. It's pretty slick. Um, what was really interesting to me was watching how quickly these these workloads um, you know pop up. But they they really honed in on, and we haven't talked about that today. But the whole idea of the scheduler and resource utilization and the actual um, overall increase of, of consumption and utilization in uh, being better and taking better advantage of your resources. So uh, talk to us quickly about um, you know what, what you can expect to see uh, in terms of resource utilization. Oh, you bet. Um, the, what we've seen is, is that um, traditionally uh, about 10% of data centers are utilized. Um, workload sizing is hard and and when you're running a particularly static um, data center, it is you know even more difficult. So you really err on the size of way, way, way too big. Um, so we see kind of on average 60% uh, utilization, um, and we have uh, one customer who 
I, I will not name, but um, they get a page if the utilization of their cluster drops below 95%. So an ops guy is gotten out of bed if their data center is running under 95% utilized. So, I mean, speaking of that utilization, interestingly, we, um, uh, when you, we've seen this telemetry stuff come out of Intel, uh, like Intel Snap, right? And they wrote a, uh, they developed an open source project or, you know, created a project and then open sourced it that kind of looks at all that telemetry data, you know, records it back and then allows things like probably schedulers and other things to kind of utilize that information. Are you, have you guys looked at that or have you talked to them or you guys have another thing you're doing to look at that utilization or how, how are you looking at it differently if you're not looking to leverage an, another tool somewhere else? Uh, we actually uh, partnered with Intel. Uh, we're still partnered with Intel. Um, but last year we announced something called um, oversubscription in Mesos that they had worked um, really closely with us on. And so the... Let me, let me see if I can explain the problem here. Um, so utilization is great. You know, being able to schedule two processes on the same host is fantastic. Obviously, you'd want to do that if you have space. But it's really hard to, to figure out whether two processes will negatively affect each other. Um, so a really good example would be um, something like scheduling uh, Cassandra on the same node as running a Hadoop job. As you can imagine, they're both going to consume disk, and so Cassandra is going to be potentially negatively affected. So um, what we call that is noisy neighbors, Hadoop being the noisy neighbor in this case. And so in Mesos, um, oversubscription um, hooks up with all of that telemetry to be able to let you monitor the SLAs that you really care about, and then um, we'll call it boot tasks that don't deserve to be there. And so the scheduler will go place Hadoop there, we'll notice that the SLAs are uh, affected and the Hadoop job will get immediately booted from the box to make sure that your SLAs are taken care of and, you know, your utilization is as high as it possibly can be. So, and, and that's pretty cool. So you guys are, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Hadoop's always a noisy neighbor, right? <laughs> they're, just, <laughs> they're just the bad guys. Um, so, when you when you do things like this, right? As as customers kind of run Mesos and things like that, we're going to get into a little bit of the um, the customer consumption and experience, and then uh, you know we're basically almost done. But I was I'm very curious about uh, your community, right? So if I saw a problem uh, or I'm wanting to do things, what does your community look like? What is your um, you know your open source experience like? Um, what is it like to try to get something PR'd in? Is it only by certain committers? Can can anybody contribute? Like, what is it? Maybe a community manager is a better person to answer this. But what is that like for uh, Mesosphere? What are you guys doing with that? So let's um, let's separate into kind of two really big buckets. Um, one big bucket is Mesos itself, and Mesos itself is an Apache product project. Um, that is ruled by all of the Apache rules. Um, and in fact, I've had people come up and say that it's probably one of the most friendly Apache projects that they have. So, you know, if you're interested in putting a new feature into Mesos, um, not only do we have a list of kind of beginner features to get your feet wet, um, we also make sure that there's a, a shepherd assigned to everyone who's working on things to make sure that the code fits and it makes sense in the project and all of the rest of that. Um, and so that is kind of Mesos. Um, and then, um, obviously, DCOS is made up of a bunch of open source components. Um, Marathon is probably, you know, the biggest one there. Uh, and while Marathon is not an Apache project today, uh, we do have a very open, um, open policy to accepting pull requests and issues and, you know, modifying things as the community sees fit. Uh, in my opinion, um, the community is probably the most important thing out there, and we really treasure it and spend a lot of time working with the community. That's cool. Uh, it's uh, the more and more we see companies that are open to the community. I think that, frankly, the more successful they are right now. So it's um, been pretty interesting to 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 learn a lot of those things. So you mentioned baby steps. That was where I was going next. Um, I'm you. You sold me. I'm excited. Uh, I have no. I have no Mesos, I have no Mesos fear, I have no DCOS, and I want to get started. So the first question is, 
what do I need? And like, what's my experience on getting started? Um, and where would you recommend getting started as kind of like the best way? So the, the absolute best way to get started is to go to mesosphere.com um, and go and create a uh, AWS cluster. It's 10 minutes. You'll immediately get to kick the tires. Um, we have some nice tutorials around that. Um, we have some applications that you can um, spin up, not just kind of web applications, but also ones that go and use um, Spark jobs and that kind of stuff. Um, and so that would really be where I would get started first, is kind of that you know first cluster. And that's the community edition? Is that what you're speaking of? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the community edition. And right now that's on AWS. I think we read it's also coming to Azure and Google Cloud to be able to do the same. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, as of yesterday, it's on Azure. So if you want to go and try out the Azure Container Service with DCOS, that's a possibility. Um, I will confess that our documentation there is catching up. <laughs> we're, we're a bit more focused on code and getting things out the door, but um, it, will, it will quickly come up to speed. Sounds like an opportunity for the community to contribute, right? So Definitely. Like, uh, get, I, for me, like I'm, I'm so uneducated on this. I can go out to Azure, go try this out, and then uh, everything that I can't figure out, I can just send you notes on the, on the, the documentation and get it cleaned up. So. Uh, def- uh, definitely. Um, we also have a public Slack channel that um, I hang out in along with most of our support team and a bunch of other engineers um, that is always open. It's, uh, you can get an invite to it by going to chat.mesosphere.com um, and we are pretty quick at getting responses to people and helping folks out. And the, the help is not just DCOS, it really is anything. <laughs> I have answered random container questions. We have talked about Mesos internals. You name it, we're pretty much happy to jump in and help out. That's fantastic. That's super cool. So what is um, what about the other ways we can try this out, right? If I want to try it in my data center instead of AWS, or if I want to, um, you know, do I, like, what's my what's my home lab experience? What, what are my other options? Well, uh, it's a great experience, but... Um, our community edition right now is only is limited to the cloud, and so if you'd like to try it in your home lab, um, you will need to go reach out to sales and ask for a trial. Um, we have uh, we as part of the release that we just got done with, um, we actually have this really gorgeous um, GUI installer that will go and you put IP addresses in for your everything in your home cluster, and it will just go and install it and take care of everything. And again, you've got that great you know. Okay, it's I think four clicks and three pieces of configuration, but your cluster comes right up. Um, and if you're at all interested in that experience, just reach out to sales at mesosphere.com, and you know we'll get you on a POC. That's awesome. That so that's like a a thirty day trial. Uh, yeah. So is there? I mean, it's uh, it's interesting considering the kind of business you guys are. Is there? What's the thought process around uh, the thirty day trial versus um, not just having a um, open version or a unsupported version and some of the things that we see other people do from a, um, a you know specific data center experience right so you just go try it and if you like it you buy it later and there is no limit on that is there a is there a specific reasoning behind that or is it just simply a sales process uh, it, it there is some specific reasoning there um, if only because uh, the sales team and I uh, they really like to make money and I really like to make good customer experiences. We work well together, but sometimes we don't see eye to eye. Um, the kind of the first bit is it's really easy to go throw things out the door. It's really hard to do it well, and as soon as you go that open source route, you can't take it back. And so we've been really conservative in you know working really really closely with the enterprises that are our customers to get the experience as good as it possibly can be. Um, Obviously, there is you know some sales piece there, but for the biggest part, it's been kind of slowing down and making sure that that experience is really great. Um, the the conversation around uh, opening it up so that um, anyone could run run it on their data center is one that we we have on a regular basis. Um, we'll we will make a decision there eventually. Yeah, I I like here's what I need from you. It's a specific request. I need. DCOS to be able to be compiled on ARM. Maybe that's already cool and good to go. Um, <laughs> and I want to have my farm of, I've got like uh, 10 Raspberry Pis. I want to have my farm there and I've got all my containers and all the dumb stuff I do because I think it's fun. I want to run it all on there. 
So, but I want to be able to run it for a year and I need you guys to enable me there. So this is my personal request. I know I'm really important to you. So um, just think about that as you guys look at your futures. I definitely will. Okay. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So I'm glad that uh, we're both looking out for each other's futures. Speaking of futures, uh, where can we find you next, Thomas? Uh, you know, I haven't seen a huge online presence of you, um, but uh, do you do public speaking events? Do you engage with the community? You talked about your Slack channel, but um, anything you're going to be out there in the uh, in the wild? Uh, there's nothing really on the, the roadmap probably for the next six months. I'm super heads down building out the product and executing on that. Uh, I, I think that as the, the community grows a little bit more, I, I care so deeply about it that um, I'm going to be a you know bigger and bigger piece of that as time goes on, making sure that every you know we're listening to everyone and we're getting those those painkillers into the into the product. Um, and you know, I think once we we hit the table stakes, excuse me, table stakes mode, um, I'm going to start to spend some more time doing the the public speaking as well. Okay, very cool. So apart from googling Thomas Rampelberg, uh, can we find you online? GitHub, Twitter, you have a blog, any YouTube channels, anything like that? I'm super stealth. <laughs> okay, stealth. Yeah, I, I pretty much figured I, I, I picked it up. But, um, you know, you never know. Maybe there's something, some other rogue stuff going on under a different alias or a pseudonym. No, I'm, I'm super stealth. All right, fair enough. Well, um, maybe something you can give us a recommendation on. We like to ask for uh, any, any books that you're reading that are either personal or relevant to the industry that uh, you'd like to recommend for anyone out there. Oh, this is... Uh... This is going back to kind of one of my favorite subjects, and it's not particularly relevant to the industry, but it's particularly relevant to me, um, is a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, um, and it was written by the Nobel Prize winner who um, disproved the uh, rational agent model in e um, economics. Basically, he said that no, humans really aren't rational people. Um, and the thing that's really fascinating and, and the reason why I get into this book is because it really goes into uh, how we as humans perceive the world around us and it has crazy implications in how you build products. Um, it, it really has been kind of a, a touchstone for me to go and make the DCOS experience as good as it possibly can be by you know, working around how we as humans are rational sometimes and irrational at other times. I'm mainly oh. irrational when I'm hungry. <laughs> you're you're uh, angry. Yeah. Come to find out, you are not the only person there. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, cool. Thomas, thank you for that recommendation. Uh, so, again, it's Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, you probably be able to find it just by a quick Google search or, hell, maybe on YouTube. But uh, that said, uh, Brian and I are on Twitter. We are social. We want to hear your feedback. We want to hear what you thought of today's podcast anything in the past, what you want to hear in the future. And, and to that end, right, we reached out to Mesosphere and got this, uh, got this interview with you, Thomas, because of our listeners on Twitter. So we reached out to uh, Mesosphere on Twitter, and they obliged. So uh, um, definitely get social with us and, and, and let us know what we can do. Uh, so with that, Thomas, thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate your time today. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, you've got uh, you got some cool stuff going on there in Mesosphere, and especially with the DCOS. So again, thank you. Um, we look forward to watching the product evolve, and uh, maybe if Microsoft tries to buy you again for a little more cheese, uh, you guys might sell. But uh, that's about it, man. Fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's super fun to tell everybody about what's going on, and kind of where, where we're going from here. Very cool. Well, with that, this is uh, the end of the Hot Isle today. My name is Brett Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. Thanks again, Thomas. Thank you.